Well, I'll invite you to turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Today is a quite the turning point in our study in this chapter. Uh, but again, before I, I begin, I wanted to uh, just, I, I need to give this reminder every once in a while. Um, but I want to encourage you as a church, as 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 brothers and sisters in Christ to especially and I realized it and maybe I should have given this this encouragement more in the midst of Matthew going through the Olivet Discourse uh, that you take every advantage of the opportunity to ask questions um, to one another and specifically of me when you don't understand what in the world I said at a specific point and that you write that down and so you can, tell, you can bring it up with me and so that we can go over it. Because um, I can't address every specific... Th- like, like, there's two sides to this. I can't address every specific poss- like, implication and, and aspect of, of a passage that I'm going through. And also, I'm, there's also going to be times when I just mess up as a teacher and I say something that's not clear and that could be clarified. And so I just wanted to ask you, and I wanted to put it this way. Um, I wanted to ask you to not be selfish. Um, and, and, and by that I mean, I think there's a hesitancy, hesitancy at times to not ask questions because you're, you're worried, and I, I get this, that it's going to make you look silly. Or it's going to make you look like you don't know as much as you should. And so I want to say, don't be selfish because you're, you're making it about you about what you look like by asking certain questions or by being a, a, you know, a burden to me to ask these things. Uh, I want you to think of it instead. Turn it around, and especially for those of you who have kids, you totally will get this. Uh, just the difference it is when I, like, when, when I sit at the table with my kids and we go, we're going through a passage or a catechism, the, difference, the, the night and day difference between when I'm going through them and, I'm, and I, as I'm teaching them and I'm looking at them and they're, they're just looking at me like this and their mouth is kind of open a bit and I say, is there any questions? And no, there's nothing. And then we say, we pray and we're done. We go on. If you compare those times, and I'm sure you've, if you've, you've had these moments, parents, where they ask that question, just the really obvious question, and then another one, and you answer, and then another one has a question, and then you answer it, and, and they're engaging, and they're responding, and this, this conversation is going on. It's really simple stuff, but it's really how encouraging it is to the teacher. So that's why I wanted to try to be selfish myself and say, don't, don't just be thinking about you and your, you know, what the question makes you look like. If you want to encourage me as your pastor, ask questions, because it tells me that God's working among his people that he's and he's doing probably in different ways with different um, different focuses different passages and so um, so let me know that uh, that God is engaging you with his word through uh, through this ministry so that's my first sermon Uh, let's go on to Matthew 24 today we're going to be looking at verse 36 uh, to 44. I'm going to go to 44. It's probably going to tie in. I'm going to use that again next week as to launch us into the rest of the passage. But today we'll be in verse 36 to, to 44. 
I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and, were, uh, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night... The thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I'm just going to finish the chapter. When this is the faith, uh, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all the possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. So in the early 1800s, a Mr. William Miller, a Baptist preacher, had developed a focus on the imminent return of Christ. And eventually many thousands who would be called Millerites accepted his idea that Jesus would return in the year, years covering 1843 to 1844. He had arrived at this date based upon a study of Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And when his initial predictions failed, he adjusted his findings to conclude that Jesus would return on March 21st, 1844. And then later on October 22nd, 1844. And after these two failed, uh, William Miller quit promoting his ideas on Jesus' return and And there was a bit of a break, uh, the the Millerites breaking up after that. But in the morning following the great, what they call the great disappointment of October 22nd, 1844, uh, a Mr. Hiram Edson claimed to have seen a vision. And he said that he saw Jesus standing at the altar of heaven and concluded that William Miller had been right. About the time. It was October 22nd, 1844. He had just been wrong, been wrong about the place of that return. In other words, Jesus' return was not to earth. But it was a move into the heavenly sanctuary. As is referenced in Hebrews 8. And so Mr. Joseph Bates, a retired sea captain and convert to Millerism. 
then began to promote this idea and publishing a pamphlet that would influence and spread these ideas, uh, reaching also James and Ellen White. Ellen White um, is especially more well known. And it's these three who would become the driving force uh, behind Seventh-day Adventism. As well as, with with the Millerite movement, they also had a strong influence on the Jehovah's Witnesses. uh, Charles Taze Russell as well. Uh, and uh, that development that came. Now this is just one of the countless examples uh, of various uh, heretical movements that have caught, that, that, that basically would catch the attention and lead thousands astray by their bold end times predictions. Um, and, and it still goes on today, though I would say people seem to have just start this. Start to learn their lesson that it's you know it, you're playing with fire by by saying a specific date and the date happens and then what? Um, but you'll still have occasionally certain movements, but the, of course they'll die off when that date happens and nothing happens. But it serves as an illustration of the importance of heeding Christ's prophetic wisdom and instruction in our passage today. So I just want to remind you uh, that as we arrive upon a significant transition point in the Olivet Discourse, here in verse 36, I want to just remind you of where we've come from here. And before, before embarking on our study in the Olivet Discourse, beginning back in verse 4, I explained how the entire scene of the Discourse uh, is set following after the seven woes of, of judgment upon the corrupt religious leaders and system of Jesus' day. And then it is followed by Christ pronouncing their house of worship being left to them desolate in verse 38, Matthew 23, verse 38. And then removing, after that, his presence is removed from the temple and they go and they set on the east side of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives where he prophetically pronounces... The complete destruction of the temple in verse 2, Matthew 24. And it was from here that Jesus' entire discourse that structurally follows the two-part question of the disciples that we get in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? And secondly, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Even though in the disciples' minds, both questions amounted to the same thing, we know from Christ's response that their chronology of last things was a little hasty. Which, by the way, is really, we're all guilty of being a little, our timeline being a little more hasty than God's timeline. And, and so they bring this, this, this question, this structure, and Jesus follows it. Um, or follows that same structure, answering these, their questions. And so Christ, he answers the first part of their question with astonishing detail, all the way up to last week's passage in verse 32-35, about the events and the timing of the temple's end, which would take place according to the sovereign word and will of Christ in AD 70. But then there is a visible change in our Lord's focus and words, going from what is certain and he's telling us can be known, right? And they, they can be sure that when they see this, he's at the very gates, they, right? There's all these, the, 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 this, this clarity and certainty. 
And then it shifts to this, to the unexpected and to the unknown, beginning in verse 36. So uh, just again, just to, to show you just within these few verses, verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch tree becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. You, you know these signs. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And everything hereafter is given to, and we'll see, it's just a repeated given to illustrate the unknown and the unexpected hour of the judgment, marking what I believe is the end of the age that they, they first asked about. Where, the, where we see the nature of judgment being shifted here. Being, from what appears to be, at first it, was, it appears to be a temporal and a local judgment, right? Flee to the mountains. Uh, when you, like, there's, there's certain things that make sense in that local context to this judgment being broadening out and being quite universal in its description and application. Verse 51, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, in chapter 25, verse 10, uh, on the other side, it mentions the heavenly reward of the marriage feast with Christ. Uh, then later in 25, verse 30, uh, it says that the master demands that they cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then finally, verse 46, at the close of the entire discourse, it says these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. And so the sudden lack of detail, uh, like specific detail and, and, and certainty pertaining to the disciples' question, including these repeated, we're going to see these repeated generic parables and illustrations, indicates that he is now looking beyond the imminent judgment upon local national Israel. And we'll see that's actually going to serve now as a kind of monumental or typological warning of the last great judgment to come at the end of history when Christ will return bodily. Uh, right? He's not going to come just in judgment uh, by, by his, the power of his hand and through, through, a, through a government, through, through various things that we see taking place all throughout the Old Testament. But he's speaking of when he will come in the, in the flesh, bodily, to judge all mankind at the end of the age. Now, I will mention, just, just before we move forward, that an argument can be made for those who, who hold to this, to this position and, and what I've taught so far. There are some who would agree with me to this point, um, but the argument would, can be made and is held by some that Jesus simply... Is he's continuing to speak of the judgment upon Jerusalem, and he's talking about um, he's simply going from what he could reveal and what they could know and what he could tell them to now speaking more generally of the timing. Uh, 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 sorry, th- that he was speaking more generally of the timing, 
And then he shifts in verse 36 regarding the precise day and hour. And then that's why we get, that's why we go from it being seeming so clear and so much could be known to shifting to being unexpected and unknown because he goes from speaking in generality to then speaking about the specific day and hour, which they weren't told the, the literal day, the literal hour that it would happen. Um, and so there's, that art, there, there's some people hold to that. Um, now, if that is the case, uh, I would then say that Jesus makes this, he still makes the switch. I still see how, I, I can't see how it carries forward all the way. And that he makes the switch towards speaking of the present kingdom age, followed by the future. So the shift to the future judgment still happens. It just, it would in that case happen in chapter 25. Um, where he speaks, where he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And he goes on to tell us, you know, what, what the kingdom of God, as, after it has been established, uh, with Christ reigning in heaven uh, on earth, what, what that looks like and, and what that, that period will look like and how it will culminate in Christ coming and, and judging the living and the dead. So as I said, I can see how that could very well be what's going on. But ultimately, I think it fails to account for the full range of, of, of the transition and the switch that we see here in verse 36. And, I, and, I, and how it sets it and the rest of the all of it discourse apart from the more imminent focus and language of what we've studied so far in verses 34 to 35 to this more to this broader unknown and unexpected uh, arrival uh, of Christ. So now we enter into, uh, I, I believe, we're, we're entering into the realm of the future still to come. Of course, that, that can't be said that the disciples could not, that, that these principles could not be applied to the disciples in that day in the judgment that came to Jerusalem. So, just as I have said before, in the same way that just because what we've come to this point applied specifically to the disciples and the judgment in 70 AD doesn't mean that we could not heed the same warnings for us today as we look for the coming judgment to come. And so, so here we go. Um, one more thing, though, I have to mention uh, before we move ahead with Christ's primary message, and it's, it's quite simple and, uh, and not hard for us to... It's hard to grasp, but not complicated to grasp. Uh, but first I wanted to note that the statement here, he says, uh, concerning that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That that statement, not even the Son knows the precise time of his return, has proven to be a controversial concept that, that has bolstered those who would deny the full divinity of Jesus. Um, so, right, so it basically goes this way. Isn't, isn't omniscience, omniscience being all-knowing, isn't being all-knowing a divine attribute of the eternal God? To be God, you have to know all things. And I would say, certainly it is. So how then can Jesus truly be God 
if there is something he does not know. So that's, that's the problem that, that arises from this text. And the tension is resolved when we dig into the orthodox teaching of how the two distinct human and divine natures have been inseparably united in the one person, Jesus Christ. What a big word that we'll learn later is called the hypostatic union of Christ. And so even though, so, so the implications of this is important enough that as I was preparing this, I, I saw that I could just, I could spend the rest of our time on this alone uh, throughout the rest of this message. But I want to stick with, that's not Christ's primary point. That comes, that comes afterwards as we deal with heresies and problems that follow after that I think makes it important for us to address. Um, and so, but I want to follow Christ, where Christ is taking us in this passage. And it just so happens that in God's providence, uh, I mentioned in Sunday school, um, that we, we have this habit of celebrating the mystery and glory of this very thing near the end of December every year. And so I'm going to come back to that, to this part about uh, not even the Son knowing, to speak of the humility of Christ, uh, God becoming man, and the implications of that for us as his people. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I wanted to point that out to you, that's there, and we're going to, I'm not totally dropping it, I'm going to come back to that uh, on Christmas, on uh, December 24th. For now, suffice it to note that we can be absolutely certain of two things based on Christ's statement here in verse 36. First, any human or supernatural being, and Paul says the same thing in Galatians 1, right? Like, I don't care if, if it's one of us or an, or, or, or an angel tells you this. Anything different from what I've told you. If any human or supernatural being tells you that they know the day and hour of Christ's return, they are a liar. <laughs> they are lying to you. They, they cannot know that. You have Christ's word on that. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son could tell you. Jesus, he couldn't tell them, but he could tell them that you, won't, you don't know it. And so you can know without a doubt something that you can know with certainty that any past, present, or future teachers or churches who would claim to know the date of his return, that they are out to lunch. It's full stop. Second, what I want you to just notice here is that the Father knows. So while there's a sense of, of not knowing, the Father knows. Acts 17, it's a, I, I, I quote this like every other sermon because it's just so, it helps, it gets right to the point. It says that God fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So he has, the Father has the day appointed. It is certain, it is fixed. It's just Jesus is telling us in regards to you knowing, in, in regards to it being revealed to us, you can't know the day. You can't know the hour. There is nothing you can do to hurry it along. Nor is there anything you could possibly do to prevent it or to stop it from coming. And so he continues 
but really essentially saying, ready or not, right? As we play that, the hide and seek game. Ready or not, the one thing you can be absolutely certain of is that a day of judgment is coming on a time when not one of us will suspect it any more than the day before it. And then he continues in verse 37, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now it's estimated that it took Noah about 55 to 75 years to construct the ark that God told him to build. And so the construction of the ark would have been a growing, literally a growing, visible testimony to the looming judgment to all who saw or heard what Noah was doing in that, in that area. And yet, the people paid no regard to this warning and carried on with business as usual right up to the day of the flood, it says, without any indication and as, besides the glaring ark, without any other indication that the day would be any different from the day before it. Hebrews 11 says that by, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith, He condemns it because he, he obeyed the Lord. He heard the, the Lord and he did it in faith. Even, even, to, even when it was to the contrary of what everyone else around him was saying and, and, and agreeing to. Repeated examples throughout history confirm that willful ignorance tends to be our default approach to the imminent threat of divine judgment regardless of of the encroaching warning and signs. I, when I was think, preparing for this, Daniel 5 immediately came to mind where uh, King Belshazzar, he, makes the, right, he made that, this great feast for a thousand of his lords and they were drinking wine in the front of the, of the thousand and, and then they start bringing the, uh, the, cu- the, the, the cutlery and the, the cups from the temple, right? And they're, they're basically just, um, they're blaspheming uh, the, the living God and then, uh, and then they see the writing on the wall, right? And they, they're freaking out. Daniel gets called in. Uh, they want to know what does this writing say. And then it, and it all culminates It's in verse 30 at the end of the chapter. That, so as they're having this feast, they're having this party, they're, right, they're doing it, they're having it their way. It ends in verse 30. That very night, Balthazar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So all, all in that same night of, of, of partying, enjoying it themselves, it, it, all of this comes crashing down. And similarly, right, again, as I said, the, the, the judgment upon Jerusalem and the, and the temple serves uh, uh, to, to, as basically the most, the clearest example, I believe, uh, of what God is saying is going to take place in all, for, in all the world. Um, in spite of all the warnings the disciples had proclaimed to the Jews, 
right? And, and in spite of the exceptionally turbulent times that were leading up to the siege of Jerusalem, you can still be sure that even in those days, the unbelieving Jews continued to live in a similar blissful manner as far as their circumstances would permit, right? As, lo- as far as they were able to just continue to, to keep looking uh, just to, to, you know, to the next thing, living in denial of the approaching societal collapse. And again, we are no different today. The world is filled with people like that today, including some of you, right? We're like that, again, on the the temporary uh, uh, current scale uh, season that we find ourselves, I think, in our society, where we could be on the brink of just utter destruction and we're just kind of going along like, you know, no care in the world. But again, I, I believe this applies more broadly spiritually to the fact that we don't know if we're going to have tomorrow. Right? We don't know, we don't know if we're going to have another day um, to make things right with the Lord before we meet Him. We don't know when Christ, and, and, and He's teaching us here, we don't know when, when Christ will return. While some have seared their conscience to the point of no return, uh, many others mock the concept of God's justice and judgment, claiming that God's love triumphs over any necessary judgment and that most, if not all, right, will get a, they, they'll, get a, they'll all get a free pass because God is loving. He, 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 wouldn't, uh, he couldn't punish people eternally. But when you really prod and dig into the realm of people's consciences, the vast majority of people today, I find, whether they'll admit it to themselves or not, have a conscience that is burdened and that is dreadful of the fact that they will be judged by God. They, 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 can, argue, you can, they can argue at you and, and spin you around in circles with their the denials and their arguments for why God doesn't exist but you bring up morality, you bring up truth, you bring up what is right and what is wrong and what is just and what is good and bad. And you start to see the look on their face and they, where you know that they know that they're in trouble. The writing is written on the walls of their hearts. And yet we have this impressive capacity to just soldier on in the folly of willful ignorance. Nobody knows when that day will be, but we all live as if we are confident it won't be today. <laughs> that's, that's how it is, right? We, we're, we, we're, we'll, we'll all agree, we don't, it could be any day. Could happen. Again, whether we're talking about the final culminating return of Christ or we're talking about your individual day, When your time is up. And yet we seem to live as if we are absolutely certain that it's not going to be today. Otherwise you'd probably be living today a little bit differently than you have been. Some of you come and go each week hearing the call to repent and to believe. And I say, and I often remind our kids... 
especially as kids, it can be easy that you hear these things taught to you again and again, but not just kids. I don't want, I don't want to just pick on you kids. We are, as adults, are the same way. To hear the call to repent and believe, to be ready for that day when we'll stand before God in judgment, and yet we'll sit here fiddling our thumbs without a care, hanging on to the baseless assumption that God will give you another week. You'll have one more week. Let alone the assumption that you'll have another hour before you finally take the opportunity to come clean before Him and to commit yourself to Him. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just let that sit in. As, so as it is right now, so it will be in the com- at the coming of the Son of Man. That ought to make us pause and, and think through again uh, what that ought to mean for how we live our lives and conduct our lives today, now, in the present. And he continued in verse 40, he said, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Now, even though the same point is essentially being made here, uh, we, I, I, do want, I did want to bring up that we have in this particular verse an example of the far-reaching influence uh, of, made, of media entertainment-based exegesis, um, where you have many American Canadian evangelicals who would, who would read this passage and understand this to be a reference to the rapture. Right, to, the, to the being caught up with Christ in the air when he returns that 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about. Now, has anyone seen or read, uh, most, pro- most likely watched, the Left Behind movies or s- series? Right? I mean, that's just, I, that's my era. Like, that's my age group growing up as a kid. And just, I remember just the, the late nights, just staying up terrified after seeing those movies. And um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's st- st- uh, starring uh, Kirk Cameron, Nicolas Cage. Actually, I, I forgot Nicolas Cage was in it, but he's, he's the pilot in that. In, uh, and, and there's this one scene, right? He's the pilot, he's on the plane, and then they have this kind of bump of air turbulence, uh, that hits, and then a bunch of just, and and then, then you have all these these random people that just vanish, and it's just their clothes left, right? And one of the and his co-pilot was a Christian, and in and the the co-pilot is you know, and he can't get into the plane, and so he's trying to get into the uh, into the cockpit, and uh, and so he needs to get in the cockpit, and and, and so just from there, utter chaos and terror just uh, uh, ensues. Two men on a plane, one taken, one left, right? That's kind of how this verse is, is applied there. Now, uh, even though, again, I, I, I might, we're going we're to see not, uh, sorry, we're not going to see eye to eye with most of you here who are, who are dispensationalists on all the implications and details surrounding the rapture. Again, that word rapture is the, it's the Latin word for being caught up. In, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, but to be fair to the guys I checked out, like I looked, I, I looked at John MacArthur, 
uh, James Cadiz, who is a, a Calvary Chapel pastor in California, some of you have mentioned. Uh, or even John Darby, the father of classic dispensationalism himself. Uh, all these guys teach that they agree that uh, left behind is out to lunch. That, um, that, 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 that it is not illustrating people being taken away to be with Christ in the rapture. That this verse is not that, to be applied that way. Um, but rather, what this verse is talking about is being unexpectedly taken away. Not to be with Jesus. Being taken away in judgment. Uh, and because of the context of Noah, right? Who's left behind in the story of Noah? The good guys. Noah's, Noah and his family are the ones that get left. Everyone else, the wicked, are the ones who get swept away, who get taken away. And so that's why that, that, that doesn't really fit uh, when you apply it to the context of the rapture. But that's, that's what's going on here. That's the emphasis of this picture, is upon the reality of unexpected separation between the righteous and the wicked that will be exposed on the day of judgment. Which is a very unpopular and offensive belief to hold to in our pluralistic and relativistic society today. We disdain ultimatums as being overbearing, being manipulative, controlling, Right, to, that, to, that to say that we, to, to say that this is the way, and this is and no other way, will get you there. To say that uh, we want to say that this is the way to follow Christ, but we'll think it is too harsh, too manipulative, to conclude. Therefore, every other path leads away from Christ. Right, we'll, we'll say the first, but we don't want to say or admit. The latter. Jesus said in in, uh, Matthew 12, 30, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, it's the same idea. Your your silence speaks. Your, Your neutrality, your inaction is action. It's revealing... Whose allegiance you're you're giving it to. Too often as Christians, we want to maintain and uphold our faith in Christ in the personal religious spheres of our lives. In our homes, in our quiet times, in in our church gatherings. While thinking it is perfectly acceptable to partner and coalition with Antichrist wherever it is necessary to get ahead in this world, to, to keep our job, that, 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 that ideal job we want, or to, to vote for a government that is less extreme in its antichrist agenda than the current government. So we'll, we'll partner with this one. Or to get a more affordable or fully funded education because it's, it's more convenient and it, it gets us closer to, to, that, to what we're trying to get to. But they're not going down the same path that you're going down if you're going down the, the way of Christ. Some of you may dare to say 
there is only one way to be reconciled to the Father in heaven when you die, right? That is an exclusive claim. There is only one way to be reconciled to the Father. But even fewer are willing to testify to our lost neighbor that Jesus is the only way to find wisdom and truth and life and justice in the world that he created and rules over now. How many of us are willing to say that in those moments? To apply it when we see it. But we aren't loving our neighbor in truth when we withhold this information from them, when we don't tell them. We're not loving our neighbor. Again, why do I say that? And what, what's the, how did I get here? There's going to be a, it's going to be exposed. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Again, the, the emphasis is on the exposed and just utter unexpected separation that will take place in that day. There is no middle ground. There's no being half taken, half remaining. And so I just want to encourage us, encourage you, let the word of Christ cause the division now. Let the word of Christ expose the separation now in our midst and with, the ways, and, and with our ways with the world so that we might present those who remain condemned in their sin that they might have the re- opportunity to repent and be, and be saved now before it's too late, before that day when that separation will be eternal and there will be no going back. So what are we to do in light of these things? I'm going to conclude with verse 42 to 44. It's our straightforward application. And like I said, next week I think I'm going to pick up with these verses as well. Verse 42, therefore, right, in light of all this, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Imagine getting a call from someone saying, you know, I just want to let you know, I'm, 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 at this time tomorrow, I'm coming into your house, I'm going to be breaking in, I'm going to be taking all your stuff from you. Uh, you know, just wanted to give you a heads up on that. I, right, what would you be thinking? How would you be responding in that moment? You probably wouldn't believe it. I'd be thinking, this guy is, isn't much of a thief, is he? Um, either, either that, or I'm thinking he's got some deceptive scheme and purpose in saying this, to, and he's playing with my mind, and, and something really wicked's going on here. Uh, but the point is, is, is not that Jesus is a thief, planning to come and rob you of all that you love and cherish, Christ is the sovereign ruler and power of the universe. He cannot take anything from you which does not already belong to him. So that, that, that's not the point. That's not the emphasis. The point is that an effective thief would never reveal the time of his robbery but become precisely at the time when the owner is least expecting it. Strategically so. 
Hence the need to be on guard and prepared and trained for the robber to come at any moment when you least expect it. And this, I believe, is what he's saying is how we are to live in light of the promised coming of Christ and his judgment. First, of course, you must die to self and turn to Christ in faith and live. As I read that passage, Acts 17, 30, God said the times of ignorance he overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So first, application number one for some of you standing here today, is come clean. Confessing your sins to God. Calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for ruined sinners to save you from your sins. Charles Spurgeon said, No sin, whatever it is, shall ruin any man if he shall come to Christ for mercy. Jesus concurs in John 6.37 saying, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever, any single one of you, whoever comes to me, he says, I will by no means cast out. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so of that you can be certain. So why do you delay? Why do you wait upon another day of which you cannot be certain, will come. When you have this certain invitation and call to come to Christ, and He will receive you as His own. John Flavel, uh, he, um, he wrote, Be not dejected, because you see yourself outstripped and excelled by so many in other parts of knowledge. He says, don't, don't be wearied that you, you see everyone, everyone seems to know so much more than you know and uh, you, you, you don't seem to be able to follow all these things like everybody else does. He says, be not dejected that you see yourself outstripped and excelled by so many others in parts of knowledge. He says, if you know Jesus Christ, you know enough to comfort and save your soul. So that's the first application. Secondly, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, 1 Corinthians 10-12, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation, he says, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Free from, flee from, your, from the false saviors, from, your false, from, the, from the comforts of this world that you would seek to go to to find refuge and peace that brings no refuge, that brings no peace, that brings no lasting redemption. Be weary of growing weary in the Lord's battle, which is already won, though not complete until He comes. Keep 
short accounts of your sins, confessing them to God and to those you've sinned against. Putting your habits and your decisions and your feelings in subjection to the wisdom and righteousness of the Lord Jesus by faith. Again, now some of this can be this can be brought to a, to another ditch, to another extreme, when not read in light of the whole of Scripture. That when when we emphasize the, the coming of the Lord, right? We think, well, you know, there's stories of people who will say, like, they'll just, you know. Um, I don't know, they'll, they'll spend all their money and they'll, they'll you know, they won't, they'll, they'll give, they'll, they'll do something because maybe God will come tomorrow. So I, so they'll, they'll, they'll live as if, um, you know, without any wisdom and application to tomorrow. That, uh, that's obviously not the message being applied here. Uh, this has to do, particularly to do with the, whether you're, you are ready in your soul and spirit and manifest in your life to be to meet God on Judgment Day. Could you imagine if the if, I, I, was, I just I thought of this this week the effect this would have on your sanctification? Like how many of us delay making things right? Because we presume upon tomorrow to do that. Right? How many of us delay with just that? Maybe it was just that one little silly sin or that slip of a word that you said to, to your spouse or to your sibling. And you think, uh, and, and I'll get back to that in 10 minutes. And then you forget it and then it gets added on. And then something else gets added on an hour late. Could, what, if, we, if we literally took this, when it comes to dealing with just our readiness to meet with the holy and righteous judge of the universe. That we would, we would bring every sin, every temptation, every, every, every failure before him. And deal with it imminent, as imminently as we, as we can as, and as we expect that he could come. The profound and lasting effect that would have on your fruitfulness. And service for the Lord in the long run. Hebrews 12, 12. I'll close with this verse. He says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that you are being a just and a righteous God, that in your mercy and in your compassion, you have told us that you are coming. 
You have told us that there is a day in which we don't, in which we cannot expect it, in which we are to be ready that you could come at any moment. Not, you, and you have told us that not to, not as a, a fear tactic, not as a controlling mechanism, but because it is true, because it is in our, in our best interest, it is, that it would motivate us and move us to live a life that is pleasing and, and um, that will bring honor and glory to you and that will advance and, and, uh, and manifest your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us individually and as a congregation, as a church, Lord, uh, that we would, we would judge ourselves lest we be judged. That, that you would help us to, um, to be honest with ourselves as we are exposed to your word and to your instruction and teaching. And that we would allow your spirit to reveal uh, the ways in which we have yet to be conformed to the image of your son. That we would be more concerned about being ready for that day than we would be concerned about preserving an image and appearance of godliness and yet denying its power and its sufficiency to sanctify and to cleanse and to purify us. If we will humble ourselves and confess our sins and seek your mercy and forgiveness that is abundantly provided in Christ. So Lord, we ask these things that you might ready us we pray that you would go before us uh, and that, uh, Lord, that our expectation of your, of your return would not be a, a denial, serve to be a denial of uh, the need to prepare and to be ready for tomorrow, but that it would be an acknowledgement of the need to prepare today uh, and to be ready for what may come tomorrow. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.